You're listening to the Bethel Community Church Podcast. Our podcast normally showcases our weekly sermons here in Chicago at 7601 West Foster. Now, podcasts are great, but they do not replace the care and community you receive from the local church or from your local pastor. So we encourage you to come, join our community, or contact us to help you find a community in your area. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you listen. Enjoy. This morning, Will Longenecker sent me a text, night of Groundhog Day. It said, if the pastor wakes up and sees his shadow, and we will have six more weeks of this sermon series. (laughs) We are only going to be in Mark chapter 4 this morning. We have far more than six weeks ahead. Using the Bible that's provided, that's on page 839. Or I hope that you have with you uh, your uh, Gospel According to Mark scripture journal uh, that uh, would be great to use as well for keeping notes. Let us go to the Lord and, and let us ask his blessing on our time this morning. Gracious God, as we prepare to hear from you, we thank you for the reminder this morning of Christ who shed his blood, whose body was broken, so that we might be one. Thank you that Christ came and instructed us from your word. So Lord, we pray for ourselves and those who can't be with us this morning, that you would minister to each of us where you are. We think of brothers and sisters throughout the world. We especially think of those who are in war-torn Ukraine and in war-torn Israel in the Middle East. We think of those who are suffering in California just due to the uh, great amounts of rainfall that they have been receiving there. Father, we pray especially that you would be with our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are going through these difficult times. Pray that they would know your presence and your care even if they can't meet with the body this morning. Father, as we come now to hear your word, pray that you would speak through me to your people, that we would receive what Christ said to us almost 2,000 years ago, recognizing that it is the living word of the living God. God, we pray that you would work in your, by your spirit in our hearts to heed what you say. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Growing up, my sister was always was five years ahead of me. She was the only sibling that I have. And she had a secret decoder spy pen that you could write on special paper and then you would take it and use this colored plastic decoder to be able to read what was written, that special secret message that was there. And I remember, probably just because I was an annoying little brother, that I always wanted to play with this thing, even though I don't know if I could even read at the time. But I wonder, did any of you growing up have something like that? A little uh, 
you know, those rings, you, you used to be able to get them in Cracker Jack, apparently. The, the message decoder reel or the, uh, the invisible ink that you would write and then use another pen to be able to reveal what it says. Or one of those colored lenses. It would allow you to see what was there. It would reveal what was there, which others, of course, could not see. Well, this morning, as we come to Mark chapter 4, Jesus, we find, preached in parables, and he did so for a dual purpose. For those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, the parables would reveal truth about the kingdom of God. But for those who did not have eyes to see and ears to hear, the parables actually served to conceal the truth from them. Now, the key to understanding the parables wasn't some sort of insider knowledge, much as the mystery religions of the first century would have it. Rather, the key was whether you had the eyes and ears of faith. Or not. Whether your heart was prepared to receive in faith what Jesus says to us or not. So today my main idea for you is that you would hear and heed the gospel with repentant faith. And then that we would confidently proclaim this gospel to others because the kingdom of God will certainly triumph. Now before we start reading our text, we often, as we come to the parables of Jesus, read them one by one. We, we read them one at a time, and certainly that's a way to understand them as they are. But Mark gives us these parables all together because he intends for us to understand them together. Each one sheds light on the others. In the first parable, which has usually been called the parable of the sower, and probably better be called the, the parable of the four soils, but this parable, as Jesus tells us in verse 13, is actually the key to understanding the others. And as Jesus is giving these parables, he ends up talking to his disciples because the parables were given to help them and to help us to understand why it is that people were responding differently to the news of Jesus, the good news that he preached. He was answering the question, why is it that so many people, even as we saw last week in chapter 3, why is it that so many people are not responding properly to the good news of Jesus? I mean, after all, what Jesus was preaching, the, the good news is the best news ever. That the Son of God should come in the flesh to save us from our sins and the consequence of our sins and to reconcile us to God so that we can have abundant and eternal life. You will not find a better message than that. 
So why were so many people in the first century rejecting that message? Why do so many reject it today? Look with me at verses 1 and 2. That's where we'll begin this morning. Mark writes again, he, that is Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Now, a par- the, that word parable, as it's used in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is actually notoriously difficult to define. If you grew up going to Sunday school, you probably heard the definition that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. There's truth to that, but it's a little too narrow because parables weren't always stories. They could include analogies, similes, metaphors. And so to, to put it at its simplest, a parable, as Robert Plummer says, is Just that, it's a comparison of two things. Or as the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery puts it, a parable is a comparison using realism and symbolism. So there's real life events and persons and things like farming or like weddings or lamps or a good Samaritan or a prodigal son. But there's also a symbolism. There's a meaning in what Jesus is saying in the the parables, and that's where that comparison is found. See, Jesus was a master observer of life. And so he's giving, using what he observes in everyday life to help us make a connection with the truth of the kingdom of God. The parables, however, aren't just to fill our heads with knowledge. No, the parables were given to elicit a response from us of repentance and faith. And so in verses 3 through 20 then, Jesus goes on, in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand 
all the parables. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9 together in 13 through 20 because, of course, it's Jesus' explanation of them. We begin at verse 3 there where Jesus gives us two imperatives, two commands. Verse 3, he begins with the word listen or hear. He'll use that word again in verse 9 and then again in verse 23. He's calling us to listen to what he says. Then again in verse 3 is a second command, behold or see. Jesus is calling us to take heed, to pay attention to him. And it's important that we pay attention to Jesus, just as it was important for Israel to listen to the Old Testament prophets, because you see, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He is the greatest spokesman for God. Because, of course, he himself is God come in the flesh. He is the full and final revelation of God. And so when Jesus speaks, God is speaking to us and we better pay attention. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 tells us long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So we have the greatest revelation of God here. And so living as they did in the first century amidst much white noise going on around us, much to take our attention, it's right to focus and to listen to Jesus. Well, Jesus tells us that there will be different responses to the gospel. There are different responses to the message that he proclaims. We've got to be careful that we don't overinterpret the details of a parable. And so, for instance, we you know, read about how the sower who is going out and he's you know, spreading around seed and it's falling all over the place. I mean, it'd be easy to say, well, why don't you just find the good soil and start planting it there where it's going to grow? Well, Jesus isn't trying to explain to us Galilean farming practices. He's not trying to teach us how to farm at all. Rather, as the ultimate sower of God's word of the gospel, Jesus is going out and he's liberally, generously spreading the seed of the word everywhere. No matter how people are going to respond to it. And he's showing us that the problem isn't with the word. 
The word of God is powerful. It's life giving. The problem's not with the word. Rather, the problem is with the soils. The problem is with the hearts of people. You see, your response to the word of God depends upon the condition of the soil of your heart. So as Jesus says, if you have a hard heart that's like the seed along the path that's sown there, you're going to hear the word of God and you're just going to dismiss it. Satan's going to be able to come and just snatch it up like birds going and hungrily gobbling up seed along that path and there will be no change in your life. Maybe this morning you're more like the second soil. Maybe when the word of God comes to you, you gladly hear it. You gladly hear the gospel. You maybe even pray the sinner's prayer as you hear it. And yet... There's no real commitment, no real depth, no true saving faith. And so you hear it, perhaps you immediately respond with what looks like faith. But when sufferings and trials and persecution come like the sun beating down in its heat, you decide if this is what it means to follow Jesus, then I'm not going to keep on. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, there are two characters at the beginning of the book who really picture for us these two types of soil. You know, if, you, if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, I'd encourage you to, to read it. You can watch it now. There's movies about it. But that first rock-hard sort of soil would be a guy by the name of Obstinant. Obstinate is so stubborn, he hears what Christian is saying, and he wants nothing to do with it. But then the second sort of soil is like a man by the name of Pliable. Pliable hears the word, and he gladly receives it. He, he listens to Christian talking about what the celestial city is going to be like, and he goes with him. But the moment that they run into trouble, they fall into the slough of despond. And Pliable gives up and just heads right back to the city of destruction from which he came. That's what the second soil is like. Or maybe your heart is like this third soil. It's much like most of the gardens I've ever planted. Weeds just grow up and sort of take over. You've got to get out there and constantly you're weeding them and there's no way to really keep up with it. In the same way, maybe the cares of this world, the desire to have riches and the things of this life come in. And because those are there in the soil and they haven't been rooted out, they're, they're native to an unconverted heart. And so they choke out devotion to Christ before it can ever really get going. These three soils aren't true saving faith. They're just differing responses to Jesus. The fourth soil is the one that's the true saving faith. It bears fruit. That is, it results in repentant faith, as Jesus has been talking about since chapter 1, verse 15. It results, as we saw last week in chapter 3, verse 35, in doing the will of God. 
And yet notice, even among Christians, some bear more fruit. They're all Christians. They're all saved. And yet some Christians respond to God in ways of more obedience. Verse 9, notice what Jesus says to us. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Take a self-inventory on your life, Jesus is saying. How are you seeing God's word? How are you hearing hearing God's word? Are you receiving it? Are you repenting? Are you believing? And Jesus, uh, of course, has an urgency about this. Because your response to the word of God will determine whether you will have a relationship with God or not. It will determine your eternal destiny. It will determine whether you are in the kingdom or, as Jesus says, whether you are an outsider. That's what we see in verses 10 through 12. Jesus had a dual purpose of his parables. He says, for those of, with good soil, those with the heart of faith, he says, to you has been given the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. But... For those outside, those who reject Jesus in unbelief, he says it's much like in the days of the prophet Isaiah. That's why he quotes Isaiah 6 here. Just as the people of Isaiah's day, some seven centuries before Jesus, heard Isaiah preaching, but most of them with hard hearts in unbelief rejected the prophet, so it was in Jesus' day and certainly among many today. And so Jesus speaks in parables, and the parables actually concealed the truth, the the message from them, because they weren't willing to receive it. Verse 12, it was so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, that they may hear, but not understand, that they wouldn't comprehend it or, or appreciate it, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Maybe you hear those words and you wonder, as many have throughout church history, and there's been a whole lot written on verses uh, 10 through 12 here. Why would Jesus want to conceal the truth of the kingdom from anybody? There's at least two reasons for it. One is historical. It was through them being blind to the kingdom. It was through them rejecting what Jesus was saying and rejecting Jesus that led them to crucify the Son of God. And if they wouldn't have done that, none of us would be saved. That was necessary in God's plan of salvation. There's also a theological reason to it. As Paul says in Romans 1, God in his holy wisdom gives those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, who refuse to honor him as God and give thanks to him, God gives them over to their futile thinking and their hearts are darkened, gives them over to the lusts of their heart. If you are trusting in Jesus this morning, It's only right to acknowledge as Jesus makes clear in verse 11. To you has been given 
the mystery of the kingdom of God. It's not because of anything good about yourself. That's a divine passive there. It's been given you by God. You see, naturally, we are just like everybody else. None of us is born neutral to God. Rather, we're all born in sin, all born in enmity against God. And so apart from God's unmerited saving grace, apart from God's work in our lives, we would be dead in our sins going the way of the world. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, who were we? We were those who were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that is following the evil one, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This morning, if you are here and you are trusting in Jesus, the only right response is to thank and praise God for what he's done in your life. God is the one who has tilled that soil. It's God who's the one, as Ezekiel 36 says, who has taken out of you that hard, stony heart and put within you a heart of flesh that has responded. God deserves all the praise and the thanks for how good he is to us. If you're trusting in Christ, that as well should determine how we act toward those who don't yet know Jesus. Because we were once there. You know, Jesus isn't calling you to be a soil tester. He's calling you to be a seed sower. I, I can you know, tell you it's easy to become discouraged in going out and telling people about Jesus, proclaiming the truth of Jesus. You know, I can find myself beginning to be more like a soil tester. You know, before I'm going to tell this person about Jesus, maybe I'll wait and see if they're even open to it. Well, Jesus doesn't call me to that. Now, certainly, most of us aren't gifted in such a way that we're going to be out talking with everybody we meet on the sidewalk. Most of us wouldn't have the time for that. We all have family, we all have friends, we all have neighbors, we all have co-workers. We are to liberally spread the seed of the word to them, leave the results to the Spirit of God to work in their hearts. And so certainly I would ask that you pray for me and pray for one another, that we would be faithful, generous seed sowers. Well, after Jesus explains the reasons for the varied responses, he then makes clear to us that we are responsible for how we respond. Verses 21 through 25, we read, And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket, or under a bed, and not on a stand? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is, no, it's meant to be put on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. 
From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So Jesus here gives us these two analogies, these two parables that have one point, that the lamp and the measure are making clear to you, you are responsible for how you respond to this message of the kingdom. Jesus has come to reveal to us the truth. He hasn't come to hide this from us. Now, certainly there were things that weren't clear until after his death and resurrection, until the Spirit came and the apostles are preaching the gospel, and things are going to be hidden ultimately until Jesus returns and it's revealed to everybody. But as Jesus says, with the revelation you have, if you have ears to hear, hear, listen, pay attention, receive it. Then he gives us a third command in verse 24. He said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Literally what he says is, see what you hear. Take heed to what I'm saying. There's an urgency here. It's sort of like if you are a parent and you have a 16-year-old. And they're about to go out driving for the first time on their own. You're telling them, final instructions, listen, pay attention to this. That's how Jesus is speaking to us. Pay attention, listen, this is important. How you respond is going to determine everything. The measure you use is going to be measured back to you. If you are hearing and if you are believing and if you are, as a result, obeying, then God's going to reveal and add more to you. But then, specifically for unbelievers at the end of verse 25, if you don't have, if you're not hearing and receiving in faith, even what you have will ultimately be taken away from you forever in hell. So Jesus is calling us to pay attention, to hear, to respond. There's an implication of this for believers as well. Maybe you you look at your own time reading the Bible or or listening to a a preacher and you're hearing God's word and you're, you're just saying, you know what, I'm not getting much of anything out of this. Before you go and cast stones at the preacher or you throw out your Bible... Ask yourself, have you been turning a deaf ear to God? Maybe sometime the Spirit convicted you, hey, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to respond. But you came up with a million excuses. Why? Well, that's for that other person. That's not for me. Or you justified your actions or your lack of action. Now it seems that God's just not speaking to me anymore. It might just be that you need, God is calling you back to something that you didn't do and calling you to repent and return and respond in obedience. There's the old hymn that says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And so even how you as a Christian respond and continue to respond to God's word will determine how fruitful your life is. Listen, God 
is infinitely generous. You can never use a measure that's large enough that you're going to contain all of the love and the grace and the revelation that God has for you because God is inexhaustible. So Jesus is calling you to take responsibility for how you hear and what you hear. And then he gives us two similes for the kingdom in verses 26 through the end of the passage. In spite of the lack of good response, notice what Jesus says in verse 26 to 29. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. When the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Here in this parable of the growing seed, Jesus' point is that God causes the growth of the kingdom. Now, I've been reading a book about various political ideologies. And if that sounds kind of nerdy, yes, it it really is kind of a nerdy book. But it's interesting that the author points out that all of these different political ideologies have redemptive stories to them. They promise a better future when their specific ideology is embraced and when that is the ruling ideology. And the proponents of that ideology would all say that history is moving toward their ideology somehow triumphing. They all think, as we so often put it, that they are on the right side of history. Karl Marx, for instance, believed that it's inevitable that the people, that the proletariat are going to rise up and throw off their oppressors and we're going to end up living in a socialist paradise. Liberalism would say that people are going to escape oppression through having their rights realized and through being able to live individually however they want. Conservatism would say that salvation comes by a return to the way things used to be. Democratism would state that as the people gain power, they're going to throw off totalitarian rule. Nationalism would say that we're going to be saved when the nation state receives the highest loyalty. And it's interesting as I read all those different ideologies, they all have one thing in common it's us. The people who bring about our own salvation. It's we who establish the glorious future that's promised. But you look at what Jesus says here and he says, no. The glorious future of the kingdom doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. It depends on the sovereign working of God alone. The kingdom will certainly triumph because of God. Now, don't overinterpret what Jesus says here. He's not telling us that we can then just go and sleep and do nothing. And Jesus did give us the great commission where he says, what? You're to make disciples. We're to be active in this. But his point is that it all depends on the work 
of God. The harvest comes about by the work of God. There's an Old Testament background to what Jesus is saying here. Daniel 2, you can go and read it later, Babylon's mighty king, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream of this giant statue made up of differing metals, each representing various kingdoms of men. And one after uh, another, they're they're not permanent. You have these differing kingdoms coming along until finally there's a small stone that's cut out without the help of any human hands and it comes and it strikes the statue and destroys it. And that little stone becomes a great mountain that fills the earth. Well, Daniel goes on to explain in Daniel 2, verses 44 through 45. He says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. That it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. God's kingdom will ultimately shatter all the other kingdoms. God's kingdom will ultimately triumph over all the other ideologies. It will be the highest mountain filling the earth, but it's not by our doing. You see, brothers and sisters, we can't vote in the kingdom of God. We cannot somehow make sufficient technological or sufficient medical advances to establish the kingdom of God. We cannot even through our missionary efforts bring in the harvest. It's ultimately the work of the sovereign God who does so by his own effort. It's God who's established his saving reign. He did so by raising his son Jesus the king from the dead on the third day and raising him to his right hand and sending the spirit who is now at work applying what Jesus has accomplished giving new life where there was only death. See God doesn't need us but God delights to work through his people who gladly join him. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's the sovereign God who brings success to his kingdom and guarantees it as we see in verses 30 to 34. We read and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. 
Here we see this parable of the mustard seed that Jesus is guaranteeing the triumph of the kingdom. Now, just as Jesus wasn't giving us a farming lesson earlier, when he describes the mustard seed as the smallest seed, he's not giving us a botany lesson. There are smaller seeds than the mustard seed. He's using this as a proverb. Mustard seeds are tiny, but they end up being these large plants, these large almost trees, these shrubs that are 10 to 15 foot, and they begin to take over the entire garden. So Jesus is saying the kingdom starts small. It starts with a man who is crucified so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to God. The kingdom begins with 12 nobodies, one of whom will betray Jesus. The kingdom fills the earth like a mountain, as Daniel foretold. With all the birds, which probably is talking about the nations being able to be found in it. Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom will certainly win. Do not discount the kingdom of God. Its triumph is guaranteed. You know, even as it looks like the kingdom is losing. And we as Christians need to be careful of this because we can watch the news and see everything that's going on in the world. We can hear all of the nonsense that's happening in our own nation and we can start to begin to think that maybe God is losing. Friends, the light of the kingdom is shining. People all over the world are coming to know King Jesus. Entering into his loving, saving reign. The spirit of God is at work in the world. And one day is going to renew the entire cosmos. So that there will no longer be sin or Satan or death. The end is written. The triumph of the kingdom of God is guaranteed. One question remains. How are you responding to the message of the kingdom? Let's pray. Father, I pray that all of us would respond in faith to the saving reign of Jesus. Father, we pray that for any who are here, that, oh God, if they haven't yet, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see. Father, this would be the day of salvation that they would be able to rejoice in February 4th, 2024. God, we pray for all of us. Help us to be those who live with ears to hear and eyes to see and who respond faithfully to you. Love you, Lord, and pray this because you are so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.